Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special best podcast in baseball, a tribute of a BPIB. Cardinals Hall of Famer and broadcast legend Tim McCarver died Thursday, February 16th, 2023. He was 81. One of the game's great bards and gentlemen, McCarver played for the Cardinals, won titles with the Cardinals, and in his final tour as a Hall of Fame broadcaster, called games for the Cardinals. In May 2016, he and I sat together at the ballpark in Washington, D.C. and discussed the power of storytelling in baseball. It was one of the great honors I had was to have many conversations about baseball with McCarver when he joined the Cardinals on the road. This is one of those conversations, and it begins after an introduction from McCarver's former broadcast partner, Dan McLaughlin. All right, you ready? Yeah, ready. This is Dan McLaughlin, television voice of the St. Louis Cardinals on Fox Sports Midwest. You're about ready to listen to the best podcast in baseball with the very talented Derek Gould and my partner, Tim McCarver. So if you're done washing your carpets, maybe doing your hair, and you're really, really bored, carve out 40 minutes, and you might learn something. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another BPIB Short. I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Tim McCarver is in his third year calling St. Louis Cardinal games for Fox Sports Midwest. The Emmy Award-winning broadcaster called 28 consecutive postseasons and was a distinctive voice on many of the most memorable World Series moments of the past two decades. Before his Hall of Fame broadcasting career, he was, of course, a catcher for the Cardinals. After broadcasting for Fox Sports for several decades, he's back with the Cardinals, relishing the different ways and different tones a local broadcast connects with the fans. That's what I wanted to ask him about, storytelling, and how and when it fits into the modern Twitterized game, and how it's different on the local level than it is on the national level. And also, are we losing it? Is baseball losing some of its storytelling tradition? We found two seats in the upper deck of Nationals Park one morning this past weekend and just started talking. You're welcome to pull up a chair. This is uh, some retirement you're having. You, you retire from calling games to now I see you all the time calling games. I, I never intended to retire. I, I, I did intend to uh, step away from the uh, from the postseason in October. The workload became uh, increasingly uh, uh, too much, and uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no deal with the Cardinals, but before Game Six in uh, in 2013 in Boston, John Moselak came up to me and he said, what are you going to do when you're through? You're not just going to step back away from everything, are you? And I said, well, uh, right now I don't know uh, because I'm, I'm still trying to get used to the idea of not doing Octobers and not working with Joe anymore. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, our AAA team's in Memphis, as you know, and everything, and there might be something there with you as a liaison between uh, the Redbirds in Memphis and and uh, the Cardinals. And I said, yeah, so I kind of tucked it away and didn't think anything more of it other than I, you know, kind of tucked it away. Uh, and about a month later, I got a call from my agent and the, the Dan Farrell had, mm-hmm. had contacted uh, my agent. 
and ask about the possibility of maybe me doing a handful of games. And so it appealed to me, and, and that's how uh, I became connected. But John was the wow. uh, was the first guy who, who mentioned it. Not that so, it was his job. He just mentioned yeah. interest. That's all. Yeah. So John Moselak scouting talent, essentially, is <laughs> yeah, what he was right, doing. Right? right. Right. That's right. Yeah, I was kind of a guy on the farm. <laughs> Literally on the farm. What's a... You mentioned that it, there was appeal. What was the appeal of? Was it coming back to the Cardinals? Was it because it was Cardinal specific, or was it local? Yeah, I, 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 well, I seriously doubt that if some other organization gave me uh, a chance to do what I'm doing and have done over the last three years, that I would have jumped at that. Because to me, the you know, the uh, the '60s were such a. Uh, or was such an extraordinary uh, decade uh, from a St. Louis standpoint and from a baseball standpoint, really, when you think about it. I mean, the pitching was extraordinary with Marichal and and, um, and Koufax and Gibson and Drysdale and uh, Osteen and, uh, and Perry and all, all of the uh, extraordinary pitchers that were in their prime to the point where not only Bob, I mean, Bob was the, the key guy that changed the, the, the course of the game in 1969 by lowering the mound, but the other pitchers that had extraordinary success, and, and, uh, and that's key. So anyway, with, the success, with that said, and the success that, that we had uh, throughout the 60s, it, it, it made sense uh, that the last job I hold in baseball would be with the Cardinals. It, would, it just made sense. It was the arc that went around the circle. Or, or it, fit, it fit that, uh, uh, and it was quite appropriate without being, without gushing and trying to make too much of it or anything like that. For me personally, it was, it was very important and still is. Yeah. I hope you don't mind me asking, do you wear the Cardinals World Series ring? Is Always that... have. Really? Always have. Matter of fact, I had the 1967 ring stolen, uh, and it was replaced by by the Cardinals. But it was replaced by by someone that I didn't think really knew the significance of me uh, of, of me playing yeah. and everything. I, I'm not sure she even thought I was a player, uh, but they did that, and and that, you know I thought I I discovered on eBay. That's what the Officer who investigated the robbery in, in a, uh, uh, one of the islands around Seattle. I was playing golf and and, oh. uh, and uh, like the San Juan left. Island and this country. woman told me that uh, you don't have to worry about this. Uh, they don't. We leave our doors open. And unfortunately, she was right. Yeah. And I came back, and my ring was gone. Oh. So. So it's the 64 one you wear now, right? This was the 68, uh, 67 ring, which was my favorite because, uh, number one, I didn't have anything to do with designing this, but I did. There were uh, Cepeda, Gibson, Brock, uh, and Red, I believe, we were the ones who designed the 67 oh, cool. ring we were yeah that's cool yeah we, we do you like this do you like that and by process of elimination we came up with the ring and the black opal and the and the yellow gold is what sets it apart it's beautiful and in its simplicity obviously you know size is not really 
something that that matters as far as rings are concerned. I mean, I well, this is my second favorite ring ever. The, the, the but I, I, I've yeah. always worn this ring since wow. the other one was stolen. So. Did you always wear? You wore the previous one too. You just always always wore it. I, I wore the '67 ring, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the time. Wow. Uh, but you know, I, I mean, I've had. Uh, you talk about a record for World Series rings that, in, in, in having nothing to do with getting one, uh, the 80 Phillies, the 86 Mets, uh, and uh, the Yankees, uh, 1999 and 2000. Right, right, right. right. Even though George, uh, George had to be nudged into giving me the 99 <laughs> ring because he didn't like me. Really? Oh, absolutely true. Absolutely true. George and I never got along. Uh, and I worked three years with the with the Yankees in 99, 2000, and 2001. And the only reason that I worked for the Yankees was because I was fired from the Mets. It's the only reason. That is the only reason I was hired by the, by the Yankees. That's a pretty good time to be working for the Yankees. Though. Those oh, are amazing gosh. teams. Oh, are you kidding? It was the... Uh, the most, uh, one of the more uh, miraculous, spooky, voodoo days in baseball, in my opinion, mm-hmm. was when Yogi Berra had Yogi Berra Day, yeah. and Don Larson was in the ballpark, and David Cohn pitches a perfect game. Yeah. To me, that was the power of Yogi. That's amazing. Yeah. It was the power of Yogi, July 19th, 1999. Is that is that one of the... One of your favorite games that you called only only because it, it showed the power of Yogi. Yeah, uh, it, and and I defy anybody to to say that Yogi didn't have that he wasn't <laughs> that he wasn't blessed. Yeah. that he wasn't the, the man uh, with the with the Midas touch. He and Stan, of course, Stan was uh, you know because I played with Stan and played against. Uh, uh, Yogi's Yankees in '64, mm-hmm. so it was, you know, all of that, you know, very important to me. Very. What, so doing the Yankees, doing the Cardinals. You know, what's the difference between doing a broadcast for a team and for a, a region versus doing a national broadcast? Um, you know, I I try to make it. Where there is no difference, but uh, intellectually, I understand that there is, uh, because there is a difference. Uh, there are certain things that you take for granted when you do a local broadcast that uh, that people understand. I mean, you've been talking about these, and part of the difficulty in doing a local broadcast is you're always trying to. Uh, think of a different way to say the same thing mm-hmm. uh, that you may a three game series say three games in, in four days here in Washington and uh, you know in, instead of the mantra that he got under the slider like like Scherzer did the other night mm-hmm. we had a great a great shot Tom Mee had a great shot of of the slider that he threw to Piscotti uh, getting under the ball mm-hmm. and that made the ball Going at a level plane, it was it was a brilliant piece of directing. Uh, it, it was all it was was the ball leaving the leaving the grip, mm-hmm. and 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 the the place that it went was up here. I see. So like pop so, out. So all yeah. you have to do to make that go down here is to do this. Mm-hmm. 
so yeah, so keep the hand on top. It's, it's what like uh, um, Seth Manis was having the problem with his sinker, and that's what the you know his hand was to the side, oh, yes. and it was kind of his elbow. Right, that's what leading with the elbow does. And uh, well, you know, I know that I'm supposed to know that. I was a catcher. I mean, I I could see it. I uh, uh, so. So how do you explain that to the viewing public? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it would be even more difficult on a, on a uh, national basis because it may be the first time that a national audience has heard what you're trying to say. But with the Cardinals, I've said it before. Mm. So therefore, the, the trick is how do you say it differently? How do you make it more... Uh, how do you make the imprimatur uh, uh, stick... Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So, because you said it before, and people, people, you know, it, it, I think to be a good announcer, you have to have uh, a a general idea, and I think it's even more general, specific idea about viewing habits and about what people do when they view, uh, and and with experience, you can. You get used to the fact that you didn't explain something thoroughly enough. You can hear the viewer go, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It's, it's that yeah, invisible yeah. voice. I don't know if, if, if you have a similar experience from a writer's standpoint. Yeah, I mean, if that's... It didn't please, if it doesn't satisfy you, it's not going to satisfy the reader. I have to watch myself from lapsing into kind of... Um, I guess there's somewhat cliches, but you know the vagaries where I assume somebody knows what I'm talking about because yes. I want to speed that, to the conclusion. It, I have similar. to fight that. Then, then, then that's what we fight too. Yeah. But we can hear, uh, or we can, uh, we can become the viewer, mm. and and that's what happens with experience. You become the viewer, and you go, "What? What does that mean?" Uh, 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 in 1986, Keith Jackson and I were doing, to give you another example yeah. of what I'm talking about, Keith Jackson and I are doing the playoffs, Mets and Astros, a six-game brilliant playoff. That, And at the same time, an equally brilliant Al, Al Michaels and Jim Palmer are doing uh, uh, the Angels and Red Sox. And Henderson, had, I mean, it was just, yeah, yeah. It was just an awesome uh, 86 postseason, awesome. And um, uh, in, a, in a production meeting, I had said that uh, that ball was right down Westheimer. Well, not down Broadway in New York was Westheimer in in Houston. Now, it, while it's a cute line, uh, nobody understands it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to use it in Houston. It's right down West Town. Well, I said it a couple of times, and Keith interjected. He said, maybe I should, he softly, he didn't want to criticize me. He said, maybe I should explain that. And, uh, and he said, Westheimer's the, the main street in, in Houston, and Broadway, of course, everybody knows Broadway in New York. And instead of it being right down Broadway, it's right down Westheimer. So he taught me uh, that don't assume that people understand everything you're talking about. 
it was it was a great example for a young broadcaster by an experienced voice sure. of, of telling me don't don't think that they understand everything and he did it so eloquently and so nicely yeah uh, it's a lot like it's a it's similar to like what Hummel has helped me learn about writing for the Cardinals fan base is the sense and and maybe this goes to what is the difference between national and <laughs> like if you were to say that straight down market <coughs> to a Cardinals audience they would know exactly what you're mm-hmm. talking about um, you know and Hummel's kind of said look you know you're coming into this writing about the Cardinals with a history already at your back. You know, you have this, you know, you have a tailwind of history that the fans already know. And if you start repeating things and telling them, hey, you know, this is, you know, like you explain who Stan Musial is in an article, you don't need to. You can just put Stan Musial. Right. Um, right. You know, like in an article today, I, I don't explain that Jose Akendo is the secret weapon. I can just write he's the, or I can just reference right. to the Mike's, secret weapon. Uh, Mike's continuing uh, saying he's the secret. I think Shannon had. Yeah. Had, he came right. up with that, yeah. So you so. join it, like, in, you know, already in the process of telling the story. Yes. And the fans already have this knowledge. Yes. Um, so you do speak. You, so experience you know, tells you, experience tells you uh, in a local uh, telecast, what you don't, you, you've already explained enough. Mm-hmm. Stop. Yeah. Stop. You uh, or, or say, now maybe some of you don't know. And which there's always a segment of the audience that may not know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- what you, you learn to explain more fully is if you think that there is a majority of the audience that doesn't know, then it's certainly appropriate to make, and, and you have to make, those are calls you have to make yeah. like that on a telecast. And, uh, and sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes they do understand what, but the viewing habits and listening habits in particular, listening, is it's, it's, it's proven that uh, a woman may be cooking and, and listening to the game. Mm-hmm. She, she, very few people are riveted to every single syllable that you utter. <laughs> so, so with that in mind, you have to, you have to understand when, uh, when to reiterate, when to explain more fully. Uh, and then when to drop it? That's enough. Yeah. And I and I've learned that over the years. I was I was terribly uh, in my early days, and I didn't know what I was doing. Number one, but I, I did have the uh, the beauty for a young broadcaster of observing Harry Callis and, and Richie Ashburn and Andy Musser and Chris Wheeler. I was the fifth broadcaster. I've always said that I was a fifth broadcaster in a four-man crew, <laughs> and and I really was because all I would do in some games, some games I would I would come to the booth and not work, yeah. Or some games I would come to the booth and work one inning with Richie Ashburn, who did the play-by-play, and uh, would eat peanuts doing the play-by-play and ground ball to crunch, 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 short. <laughs> And then he took time to swallow one out. I mean, in, in 1980, you could get away with a lot more, you know, with a lot of stuff. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest lines uh, in, my, in my experience, in my 36 years or however long it's been, was my first year in broadcasting. And I hope I'm not wandering too far off the subject. Oh, you're here. good. You're good. Yeah, this- but Richie Ashburn... 
we did, we were doing our one inning, and and I, I prepared for this one inning like it was a World Series Game Seven. <laughs> you know, I mean, I really did. I was I was loaded, and most of the time, all this information just went down the toilet because uh, you know one inning could be over, bang bang bang. <laughs> well, Bob Walk was pitching, and I said. Uh, He'd just been brought up. It's his second start. And I said, uh, Richie, you know, uh, uh, Bob Walk is pitching because of an injury to a more established Philly and Larry Christensen, who had an operation. And by the way, since he was on the DL, he was recently out, and I told this between pitches, he was recently out to his home state of Washington, and he went to Mount St. Helens, and he brought back two sacks of volcanic ash and I was looking at them for the game. And one was from the explosive side of the mountain. And the, and the, uh, the, uh, the ash was, was so silky and, and just like you couldn't feel it. It was remarkable. The other bag of ash was from the non-explosive side of the mountain. And it was coarse, the size of hailstone. And Whitey, with his, uh, with his uh, pipe, took a... And he said, I thought if you've seen one piece of ash, you've seen them all. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, and, it, it, and I thought, my job is over. My, my, my job as a broadcaster in Philadelphia is over. I, I had guilt to it. that I let, And they deified Whitey. I thought if anybody else had said it, mm-hmm. he'd have been ripped. And how can you do that with my family? I mean... The people in Philadelphia thought it was one of the great lines ever, and it might have been. Mm-hmm. But can you say that on radio? We, we were doing one inning on radio then, right. and, and I thought, I mean, and Whitey had that that pause, which was classic. And yeah, the next pitch is foul back. You know, you're <laughs> gonna, you know, you're going to get us both run out of town. He had this way of shifting the blame <laughs> yeah. in a second. And he could do that yeah. because he was the guy who'd been announcing since 1962. Yeah. But uh, anyway, no. that's I, I, I was I was very well trained with that group of guys uh, over the three years I was doing the Philly games. That's something I wanted. That kind of gets to what I wanted to talk to you about is this notion of storytelling because. Mm-hmm. You know, like you said, not everybody is riveted to every pitch. So if they have their back to the TV or, you know, or they're doing other things, there's an element of play-by-play that is necessary, but a lot of it is on the screen for people who are watching. So you don't need to, like it's that redundancy thing we talked about. How much is too much? How much is just enough of saying what's going on on the team? But the what I what I get fascinated by, whether I was watching you doing the, the national telecast or now on, on the Tums when I'm, back in St. Louis and get a chance to watch or go back and revisit some of the games that you and Dan have called is the storytelling aspect of it. And it seems like such an important part of the job you do, um, and it should be such an important part of the job that I do, and I worry that maybe we're losing it a little bit. Do you, do you see that? It's, it's a legitimate worry uh, because... Um, and an example, and I'm not coming down on Saber metrics or anything like that. I think I, uh, in our telecast, uh, the way I personally feel about that, uh, uh, people have a pretty good idea. I don't, I don't resort to Saber metrics. Uh, I think it, I think Saber metrics has a tendency to 
roboticize the player and roboticize the activity. In other words, if you place these guys this way, it's absolutely going to happen the majority of the time. It's not true. It's not true. And, and, and because of that, uh, I think the, the, a disturbing shift in broadcasting patterns is toward, is toward uh, uh, the this, this sabermetrics of the game, which is another way of explaining the game. I mean, these have been around, as, as my partner said, Dan McLaughlin says all the time, sabermetrics is nothing but common sense. I mean, Steve Hurt and the Elias Sports Bureau, they've been doing a lot of the things that the sabermetrics people say that they invented mm-hmm. or that's new. Right. They, Steve Hurt was doing this back in the early 70s, for crying out loud. And, uh, and yet they never say that. So, the, the, and, and that's an example of the roboticizing of the players, that these guys aren't uh, that... that uh, put anybody out there, and that's the case. Anybody over here, that's, that's the way it is. Anybody in this position, um, and that uh, Gian, Giancarlo Stanton... Uh, the ball is uh, fire, uh, fires off his bat uh, more than well. You know the reason? Giancarlo Stanton is 15 feet tall and weighs 400 pounds. So it would make sense. I'm sorry that if a ball off of his bat would be more than a ball off Randall Gritchick's bat. Yeah, yeah. Now you know. Yeah. I mean, our balls are this, as Dan was saying earlier, Babip. Yeah. You, know, you know, the B-A-B-I-P, mm-hmm. uh, uh, batting average on balls put in play. Well, if, if that were the case, a guy who strikes out a lot and then a guy who puts a ball in play and says, say, if he's hitting 340 but his overall average is only 230, uh, and I'm not using Gritchick as an example, but, but Randall would be an example, yeah. Yeah. balls put in play, he hits hard. Mm-hmm. But, but striking out, well, that's... You know, you're you're missing a, a vital part of of who Randall is as an offensive player, and and uh, you know, I, I don't really want to use Randall as an example, but you get the you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a guy who waves at balls, and even though even though Chris Bryan, who struck out 199 times last year, it was insignificant. His strikeouts were insignificant. And in that case, I give Sabermetrics credit for saying an out is an out. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if Sabermetrics says that a strikeout is just an out, that is nonsense I see. in the strongest yeah. term. Yeah. That's nonsense. You're going to move it because, you know, Chris Bryant is clearly a guy who can strike out and yet still be an offensive force in your lineup. He's proven that. Every Anybody who follows the Cubs understands that. Uh, but but to say for most guys, with and we've seen it time and time again with the Cardinals offense this year, first and second, nobody out. It's happened twice and no run scored. Yeah. Uh, it's happened twice in the last five games. Yeah. Once in Chicago on Wednesday, and then, uh, and then once uh, once in Game One here. Yeah. So, um, so you know, a, a little meager ground ball sometimes can do wonders for an offense. It can make it, and and you never know unless you're at the game. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so, with all of those things, all of those, uh, does that, you know, does that rob an announcer of the opportunity? To, to say that Jed Jerko 
is the only one who's beaten uh, uh, Ledmus Diaz in chess. Oh yeah, twice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So does that? Does that? Do you still have time? And in my view, I will go to the grave uh, with the idea that I would much rather tell someone a human story about who these guys are than to than to do what Sabermetrics does. In my view. And believe me, I'm not coming down on on them. I'm just saying that's how that's an example of how the game has changed and how our jobs have changed. Mm-hmm. But I refuse to fall into that thing. I'm not going to do it. It's that simple. Because to me, the human story is more important than than shifting to the sabermetric part of the right of the business. I, I, I'm there with you. I I have concerns that. Or I always think, okay, I I have to try to find some ways to tell compelling stories about the people involved here and the moments here. And I might... You're dealing with human beings. You're writing about human beings. Yeah. I mean... um, I also have, like... You think Ernest Hemingway? Unless... You think he would be on the Sabermetrics bandwagon if he were... And knowing how big a sports fan he was, as opposed to putting the right word, maybe not a million dollar word, but a simple word yeah. in there that bingo. Yeah. It's exactly right. That's that's it. Yeah. Well, he would be, I, and this is what I try to keep in mind, is like 20, 30 years from now, if I'm just throwing out agate with verbs and just telling about the numbers, then what stories are going to be told about this Cardinals team? What have I done to fail the broadcasters of my son's generation or of his son's generation by not having the stories available to them if I'm just throwing out numbers or or I'm not able to go to a clubhouse and and get the comments and get the insight and find a way to get guys who really have no interest in talking to me to open up to me and tell me the story. If Aledmus Diaz goes on to a 15-year, 17-year career... And he and I retire before it's over, or I'm gone ten years have after. Given the truth have the I truth given the story that somebody Diaz can tell? Is. is the person who is going to be broadcasting like you are now? You can tell the story of the '80s Cardinals, you know, because of the way Rick Hummel covered them, or because of you being around them. Mm-hmm. You know, is the somebody twenty years from now going to be able to tell the story of the 2016 Cardinals, or if I failed in that regard? You mentioned the word verb, right? Yeah. It's interesting that I remember hearing Al Michaels say that in in baseball play-by-play, you never use a verb. Okay. Never. How come? Left field. uh, Nobody out. Man on first. You don't have to say a line drive to left field. Okay. Oh, that, boy, that ball was hammered to left field. That ball was a sizzling line drive. Your description mm-hmm. is in front of you. You don't you don't use verbs, and you use very few um, descriptive adjectives. Okay. Uh, even though the adjectives are are you know you, but verbs are the one thing. A play by play, and and yet. You hear Doc Emmerich in in uh, in hockey, uh, and hockey lends itself maybe to more uh, uh, certainly to more verbiage, yeah, yeah. Uh, but maybe maybe more verbs. Yeah, perpetual and, uh, action. Someone, yeah, someone 
recently wrote about Doc, who's just, I mean, across the board, everybody loves this guy. And he is fabulous and a wonderful human being and everything. But someone said that in the course of a game, he used a hundred verbs, a hundred different verbs. <laughs> wow. Which I don't know. I, I mean, I didn't think there were that many verbs. Yeah, that's I mean, amazing. That he used 100 verbs in a game. Yeah. Uh, uh, but Al, and I look back on Al telling me, or met, he said it maybe to somebody else, but I heard Al Michael say it. You don't use verbs doing play-by-play in baseball. Huh. Maybe that's where baseball differs from hockey. Yeah. Well, you, have, you have the built-in paw. I, I like it, like baseball has this sustained tension. Like you don't know if this is the pitch where everything happens. You know, as soon right. as that, as right. soon as the ball is off the fingertips, anything can happen. Right. Um, but it's that waiting for that moment and filling the air. That's why the director the other night, yeah, to get back to Tom Mee's brilliant use of the ball being above the fingers. And it, it can't go down when that happens. Right, right. It's so easily understood from a viewer's standpoint. So I don't, I, I make my comment and then just let the picture play and let it, and we, he slowed it, he stopped it right there and then slowed it down. And you could see everything develop. And that was the story of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, after, after the couple of walks and stuff like that. And was the, the further point was that that I've it, uh, back to back to local broadcasting and back to saying if he if he's under the ball the ball doesn't go down if the ball doesn't go down those pitches go a long way mm-hmm. it's the cement mixer it's the washing machine yep. Yep. it's the spin cycle it's whatever any way you want to uh, phrase it i can use verbs i can use descriptive adjectives whereas doing play by play you don't Right, right. And it, it, baseball is just baseball is just a different uh, uh, a different exercise and a different area of expertise mm-hmm. for the play-by-play uh, guy, which is totally different from the analyst. Yeah, totally yeah. different. Yeah, that game for me. You know, I was like, all right, Piscotty went to the Air and Space Museum for the first time there. You know, he oh, shot. I didn't know that. Yeah, that I day. I didn't know that. And he shot a photo of the Spirit of St. Louis. He, ah. he was like, all right, I'm going to go see it. He big, we talked for a little bit, but this is the stories. Like, uh, you know, I, I had a chance to talk with him. He, he just kind of described his day, why he wanted to go see the Apollo thing. And so I'm thinking, okay, he hits the Grand Slam. This is the game. This is the game story. This is the story I'm going to try to tell. And then Gar- Greg Garcia goes and has the game that he did with three oh, great plays. Oh, Continue to hit. Yeah, I mean, how, how, Greg Garcia is the greatest hitter in the major leagues. <laughs> I mean, in my view, I mean, this guy you can't get him out. I don't care what you throw him. Yeah, so he it's, becomes the story, and the, the 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 idea that he came to the ballpark that day thinking he's going to be in Memphis the next day. Yeah, I mean yeah. that it's like knowing, right? Knowing right. that, yeah, yeah. Right. And so everything that happened in the game. You can get from a box score. You can people can piece together. But I got to tell the story of Greg Garcia and his day. This idea that he was playing to stay against all odds that he would. Stay. I mean, he was told this is a two day thing, kid. Wow. wow. So that has to be the story, right? Of course. Yeah. It's it's interesting that and, and that's the the beauty of imagination is is. It, you can, it's such a powerful weapon that you can use uh, as an analyst. Mm-hmm. 
because you have time. You have time to put it in a, in whatever whatever yeah. way you want to put it. Mm-hmm. And the minute you mention the uh, uh, the spirit of St. Louis, I I, uh, I thought about that slider being. What, what happens when a pitcher gets under a slider is the pitch becomes very light. Mm-hmm. When he's on top of the slider, it's a heavy, it's a heavier yeah, pitch. Yeah. It's tougher to lift. It's sure. tougher, tougher to hit. It, uh, often low and away out of the strike zone, so it, it darts down and away. But the minute you said that, I thought of how light that slider was, and that's what created Carey mm-hmm. and 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 Lindbergh. Uh, wanted to make it, the spirit of St. Louis as light as possible to the point where, and because I, I just finished a book on 1927 okay. uh, last year, the Bill Bryson uh, book. Yes, 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 and and uh, he was talking about how Lindbergh eliminated everything like like a, a, an inch long piece of Scotch tape to tape something together. It was so detailed, and and the. The way made the plane as light as possible to give him every advantage to make it to Paris. Sure. Uh, and 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 the lightness of the slider. I mean, that, that's the imagination that you can use uh, as as an analyst. And and that that to me is entertaining. It's not just X's and O's. It's uh, it allows you uh, uh, to me the the fun. Of, of working with Dan, number one, who allows me to go any way I want to go, and, and he does the same thing, uh, to, uh, for, you know, for the levity and for, uh, <laughs> and don't make it too serious. I mean, we're not dealing with brain surgery and stuff like that, but it's, it's, it's why it's a great job. I would be remiss not to ask you, we've talked sporadically about this team and about the one game just about the 2016 Cardinals and what you've seen I I think these three days in Washington we're, we're, we're talking here hours before the fourth and final game of the series I think the three days in Washington are some of the better played games no and certainly better the pitched games that I've seen from this team the one thing the one uh, strong suit of Mike Matheny since since he took over in my opinion is his resourcefulness. And there have been times over the last four plus years where where you I think fans thought it, uh, you know, from a from a common sense standpoint and a baseball fan and baseball knowledge over the over the years, they say, oh boy, this might be the this might be their demise. You know, it, it's coming. The downside the bad side has come, and they they pick themselves up, and 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 my, my, I think that's that's Mike's greatest trait as a leader. Some people would disagree with that. I I, I think that's his his strong suit, um, and and I mean this team obviously is not as strong as the, the teams over the last four years. I mean nobody can say right. that 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 was the case that a team that's going to win a hundred years. But you know what they. They, their resourcefulness has been something to behold. You think they're gone, and they come back. You think they're gone, and they come back. It might be just a few games over 500, 
But what if that? What if the the, the last two games carry over to Milwaukee mm-hmm. today to Milwaukee and back home, and they've won five out of six, uh, and then things pick up, and now all of a sudden you see them eight, ten games over five hundred. They have the resourcefulness to do that, and that's that's the one thing that has impressed me about Mike and about his coaching staff and about Derek Lilliquist. And here are two guys that are under tremendous pressure. When Tony La Russa and, and, and Dave Duncan mm-hmm. both retire, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, who, how cruel to put guys uh, under this microscope like that mm-hmm. in a town like St. Louis? And now all of a sudden you see success as a and, – and it's, it's not as easy as it looks, and I think – Anybody would would agree to that, but as far as the individual players are concerned, I don't I don't want to go over. No, that's fine. You know, man. over but just the over overview of what they've done. It's it's really admirable uh, how they've been able to achieve the success that they have over the last four plus years under Mike. Yeah, I, I this is the last thing I wanted to ask you. Not that I agree with everything Mike does. No, yeah. I think Mike should send more runners with the three-two count. The other night when Wong hit into the double play, that should not be a double play ball. That mm-hmm. should be second and third and two outs, and now you take your chances with an eight-hole hitter. If they walk him, that's fine. If they don't, and elect to pitch the pitcher. You know, yeah. I, I, think, I, think Mike should, I think Mike should learn that a 3-2 count with guys on, particularly with an offense that, that does not feature speed, mm-hmm. the less speed you have, yeah, right. the more tendency you – you have, in my view, to send runners with with three and two. You all right That's with Yachty across the board, huh? You all right with Yachty bunting the other day, runner in first no, and second? No, I'm not. No, nope. Matter of fact, first and second, nobody out before this season's out. I would like to see uh, if if Don Zimmer were the manager, he'd hit and run with Yachty. Oh yeah. You think yeah, of yeah. The, you think of the advantage of a hit and run? You you choose a. A pitcher that's pitching against you, a guy like Mike Lee, who's always around the plate, who throws a lot of ground balls, you know you're you're not going to get a pitch out. No catcher in his right mind or no manager would ask for a pitch out. With runners on at first and second, nobody out anticipating a hit and run. Right. If he does that, he's got your signs. Mm-hmm. So it's really a it's a <laughs> if he, you know it's yeah. a it's a bigger problem than you think because yeah. he's got your signs. But that to me, there have been several times this year that I've mentioned that that is an alternative to, to consider. Now it takes courage. Because they, and and and, and it, the guys who say, well, on a line drive, it could be a triple play. Shut up! <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, give me yeah. a break. Give me yeah. a break. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about the rare exception where that happens. Yeah. More often than not, you're going to get a ground ball. Especially but the, these the are the getter. fun things about again using your imagination mm-hmm. and and talking about the game, and that's kind of what I like to do. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, because you, you are positioned well to answer this, is are you struck by, and you mentioned the pressure that are on, that's on Matheny and Lilliquist, not just because of sure. the, who they got the who they followed in their positions, but also sort of the team they inherited too. I mean, it was a World Series <coughs> championship team. Are you struck by the 
just elevation of expectations in St. Louis. Was it, was it like this in the 60s? Was it like this when you visited in the 80s where it's like this team has to win, has to win the right way, has to bring back a chance? I mean, it just seems like there, there, there are suffocating expectations from being the baseball capital of America. That's a, suffocating is a good word uh, because there's a big difference in we want you to win and you better win. Uh, I don't think that St. Louis fans or the fan base thinks like that, that you better win. I think they understand generally. Now, of course, you're, you're going to have the bloggers out there who are, are going to just think uh, about how they can uh, uh, keep things in turmoil as long as they can. But for the most part, I mean, from the uh, the... The, the samples that I've, with whom I've spoken, uh, which is, you know, I love St. Louis. I know St. Louis very well. I've spent, you know, it's my adopted city. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I don't think that the attitude is you better win. Number one, St. Louis is not New York. New York, they can have that. The Mets are under that. Under, under that uh, description uh, this year. You better win. I mean, you were in the World Series last year. The only thing better is you win the World Series. I think that that is a prevailing attitude in New York. I don't think it's reached that stage, nor do I think in the Midwest in a town like St. Louis that's been used to winners uh, through, the, through the decades uh, that they adopt that attitude. I don't, I don't think St. Louisans are like that. Uh, on, on, with that said, uh, you know, St. Louis fans can be as tough as anybody. And, and you know that, and I know that. I know I read some of the blogs and some of the, some of the expectations that are there. But any, any civil-minded baseball fan has got to look at this team this year. And while it's not in a rebuilding mode, and there's disappointments in the starting pitching, and, and the bullpen has been phenomenal overall. Um, I, I, don't, I think there's understanding with the fan base. And that's, uh, that, to me, is why the Cardinal fan base is, is as good as it is. Because there's under, people would disagree with this, I think. But there seems to be an understanding that is not necessarily there with other organizations. That they know their knowledge and their understanding of why the Cardinals are a 500 team right now Mm -hmm. and things like that. And why people aren't jumping off bridges or (laughs) what have you, as they would do from the Brooklyn-Manhattan Bridge or Veranzano (laughs) or... Whatever, or in Boston last year, where everything right. collapsed, and now you the makeover, and they're starting to come back to earth a little bit. Yeah. By the way, too. Yeah. But it's not life, life and death, but it sure is fun. This has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me. For for I know it's twice as long as we talked about, That's but right. this is fantastic. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Tim. Welcome. Thanks for listening to this Best Podcast in Baseball short. Co-host Benjamin Hockman and I will be back with a full-length edition just on the eve of the Cardinals returning for this short homestand against the San Francisco Giants and then heading back out on the road for a Tanamu National League Central Series in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh. 
A special thanks to Mr. Tim McCarver for joining me. I call him sir, and he always tells me that I have to call him Tim, so I'm working on that. So a special thanks to Tim for joining the podcast over the weekend while he was calling the Washington Nationals and Cardinals series. As always, you can find the best podcast in baseball and all the shorts that we're doing at iTunes, at stltoday.com, and on Stitcher. You can listen to it, download it, and please rate and review it, and of course subscribe to it there on iTunes. Until next time, I'm Derek Gould, St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer, and this has been a BPIV short. Talk to you soon.